This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Cedar Springs in another series of I'm Not Grant Blankenship. People are headed for the doors. Just so you know, Bob, my wife is in the nursery and I have on no socks. Okay? So just so you know, Bob was working. Telling you, it's casual Sunday here, you know what I'm saying? I was going to wear shorts like Paul, but I don't have those kind of legs. Um, you look good in red, I just let you, let you know, okay? If you didn't like the sound of the music today, that was my fault, because I captured the web this morning, and Haley couldn't do the, the sound check, but anyway... Yeah, it's all mine now, isn't it? Okay. All right, let's play a little game before we get started. This Jerry, Gary would say this is to get your juices flowing, okay? I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to give me the opposite. So here's the first word. Up. Oh, man. It's going to be an easy day. Ready? In. Excellent. Tyro. Joy, happiness, very good. All right, so now I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to give me the logical downstream. I don't know if it's affect or effect. Amy, where are you? One of those two. Uh, But the logical downstream expectation of this word. All right, are you ready? Pitching? Catching, very good. Baseball, yeah. Rob Edelman. He'd like for the sermon to stop right there. Okay. Preaching. Yeah, you guys can't see it from here, but Bob, sweet, just mouth sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, we need an altered call. Um, I was going for the word listening. Okay, okay. Sending. Receiving. Very good. Okay. And finally. This is all going to come together. Finally, I want you to pick out what's wrong with these signs. Now, I have to warn you that I see things a little bit differently than other people, okay? So the way I see it may not be the way you see it, okay? So here we go. Are you ready? Yeah. I mean, it, yes, I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, safety first, but uh, that's an incomplete sentence, okay? Amy Edelman, is that, is that not true? Seating capacity one. No, no. The seating capacity of this toilet is one, okay? That's proper English. You guys don't see that, do you? Okay. How about this one? Broken door, do not use. I mean, first of all, you would think people would figure that out. Apparently not. But that's an incomplete sentence, too. Okay? This door is broken. Please do not use this stall. That's the way I see it.
Not even going there. Not even going there. There's no grammar in there. There's no punctuation in there. F. I mean, really. There's, this could be a huge misunderstanding. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's... that's a, I am not wanting to try that. It's just, I am surrounded by bad grammar. I just am. And uh, even in music, if you grew up in my era, Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction. Really, Mick? I can't seem to get any satisfaction. That's the way it should have been, but I guess it takes away from the song. But here it is. Three things I want you to track through with me as we go into the scripture, and I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Sorrow to joy, sending to receiving, and finally, I can't get no satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time that we have set aside to worship you. Father, to come to serve you in a manner that's pleasing. And Father, I pray that as we go through your word today that you'd open our hearts to it. Father, I would pray for anyone here who does not know you as personal Savior, Holy Spirit, that you might move in their heart. And God, I pray that you would open our heart to your word and that we would leave here changed people. Father, we are needy people. We need rain. We need you. Father, we pray that we would trust you in all that we say and do. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 19. Can I ask you a question? Is it fair to say that humans are needy? Is that fair? We're needy people. In fact, we all know people that are real needy. And um, that goes without saying, but I want you to understand that there are some great um, equalizers among men, even among needs. Um, disease, death, you realize that's the great equalizer. It knows no political boundary. It knows no financial prowess. Uh, it knows uh, no uh, positional division. It will cross every line, and it will take down every person. But there are other equalizers out there that are less displayed, and, I, and they're, what they are, as we'll see today, they're very deep-seated needs. Can I remind you that the powerful politician is no different than the ordinary voter and that the entertainer on the stage is no different than the ticket holder in the crowd and the financial tycoon is no different than the ordinary worker. They all have and we all have deep-seated needs. We're human. I only say that to illustrate that uh, in the text today because we will see that. In fact, we sometimes uh, think that our uh, biblical heroes are somewhat immune from humanity, and they're not. Let me read you something, and I want you to guess who wrote it, okay? And I quote, Ministers are noteworthy of their calling. All preachers are vulnerable to the charge of hypocrisy. And in fact, the more faithful preachers are to the word of God in their preaching, the more liable they are to the charge of hypocrisy. Why? Because the more faithful people are to the word of God, the higher the message is they will preach. The higher the message, 
the further they will be from obeying it themselves. I cringe inside when I speak to the church about the holiness of God. I can anticipate the responses of the people. They leave the sanctuary convinced that they have been in the presence of a holy man. Because they hear me preach about holiness, they assume I must be as holy as the message I preach. That's when I want to cry, woe is me. It's dangerous to assume that a person is drawn to holiness in his study, that he is thereby a holy man. There is irony here. I am sure that the reason I have a deep hunger to learn, does that sound like a need? Of the holiness of God is precisely because I am not holy. I am a profane man, a man who spends more time out of the temple than in it. But I have just enough of the taste of the majesty of God to want more. I know what it means to be forgiven, to be a forgiven man, and what it means to be sent on a mission. My soul cries for more. My soul needs more. Who wrote that? R.C. Sproul. We're all human. And Paul was the same way. Paul had a great need. He was an imprisoned man. And his need was to rejoice, to somehow be cheered up. Rejoicing is soulless to the soul. Everybody needs to rejoice. Blaise Pascal wrote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this need. That's where we gravitate to. So here's the point. None of us are immune from humanity. We all have needs. And that's today's case with Paul. So let's catch up and see how we got there. We started out in chapter 1 in the first 11 verses, and we talked about how do you um, encourage uh, the saints? How do you encourage people that are struggling uh, in the church? And, the, and, the, and at Philippi they were, and Paul reminded them, do you remember this, that they're saints in the gospel. They're saints, you're saints. And he reminded them that, they're partnered, they, that they partnered with the gospel, and that was the right thing. There would be consequences but they did partner with the right thing. And he said, in the end, he said, keep loving, keep being who you are because you're going to be ready for the day of the Lord. In other words, when Christ returns. In the second series, we talked about in verses 12 through 18, we explored uh, the, the uh, question of what do people hear from you in difficult times? And you remember we talked about the leaning tower of Pisa, not pizza, right? Leaning Tower of Pisa. In other words, when your tower begins to lean, what do people hear you say? For Paul, while he was in prison, uh, the Praetorian Guard got a good dose of what? The gospel. Uh, the, uh, all of the prisoners around him got a good dose of what? Uh, the gospel. And everybody around, even outside in the city, knew that Paul was preaching the gospel, and they were encouraged by that. And even when they came to him and said, Paul, you're... Your um, rivals are out there preaching, and, 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 and in Greek it says, what then? In English it means, so what? They're getting a good do dose of the gospel. And so at the end of the day, could we say with Paul, as he said in verse 12, 
what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In our third series, we talked about uh, in verses 18b there through uh, 30, his, his highlight statement was in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And we talked about that, didn't we? We talked about a manner of life that rejoices. We talked about a manner of life that lives and dies unashamed of Christ and the work in honoring him. We talk about a life that chooses to remain with others for the glory of Christ no matter what's going on and that there's always evidence, isn't there, of our life in Christ. And our perfect example, of course, was Christ. Over in Hebrews chapter 12, we read that where Christ chose to take our shame. He chose to endure the cross. He chose to endure hostility for our sake. And he chose to leave the riches of heaven for you and I. And as Paul said, the worst thing that can happen to us is that they kill us and we go home to be with Christ. And finally, the last time, we talked about the humility of Christ that leads to our obedience. And the key to it all was Christ's humility, and Paul highlighted that. And the same power that worked in Christ is the same power that's working through you and I. And that we do all of these things without grumbling and disputing. And then I want you to look at verse 17 and 18. Because a lot of people will take what we're going to read today and say, well, that doesn't work with what he was writing about. But watch closely. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you, sh you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And then he gets into the scripture today. And all I want you to do is just add this one word in there to bridge these texts. So that you understand how smoothly this flows. Add this word in there. Therefore. Okay. So as chapter 2 closes now. I want you to look at a, a, a pattern that Paul has written here. What Paul planned who Paul sent, but most importantly, why he did it. Because the what is going to point to the why, and the why is going to point back to the need. And the ultimate question is, what's going to satisfy that need, in particular for Paul in this situation? So let's read it, starting in verse 19. Therefore, he's saying, I hope... In the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered of news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. And how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Note the word hope in verse 19 and 23. We've talked about that word, haven't we? In the Greek, E-L-P-I-S, elpis. That is a word that doesn't translate into English well. If you'll remember, it's not some questionable thing that might be out there. It's a certainty. It's a reality. It just has not happened yet. So for the Greek term there, it will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And I love the 
the description or the real definition as you get into this word is because it says that the person is anticipating with confidence. In other words, it's going to happen, Mark, okay? But it says that they're waiting patiently with joy. And so he's saying, with joy, this is going to happen and I'm going to do this. So here's the pattern. The what is that Paul is going to send someone and the first who is Timothy. Okay, and look at, the, well, look at what the, he writes about Timothy in verse 20. Paul says, I have no one like him. Can you imagine that endorsement from Paul? I have no one like him. And then he goes on to say, Timothy is genuinely, or as we say, genuinely, concerned for your welfare. He's not like everybody else that seeks their own interests or their own desires. And then in verse 22, he says he has a proven worth. He's partnered with Paul in the gospel. And I love what Paul says there because he says, uh, how as a son with a father he has served with me. Notice he did not say he served me. Paul puts him on the same plane as he is and saying, my fellow worker has served alongside me in the gospel. And can I remind you that when you serve alongside with Paul in particular in the gospel, there's consequences. So Timothy was in the thick of it. So we know what Paul is doing. He's, he's the who. He's sending Timothy. But the key is why. Why are you sending Timothy? We put that term therefore in there, okay? He said, even as I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you, should also, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Therefore, so why is he sending him? Well, we skipped something, didn't we? Look back at verse 19. I hope, okay, with certainty in the Lord to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul had a need sitting in the midst of this prison. He had a need to be cheered. What's going to satisfy that need? He he tells you, news of you. What's news of you? Can I tell you, what Paul wanted to hear was firsthand from Timothy. He sends his own envoy to hear about news from the church and about the church at Philippi. He wanted to hear firsthand about their obedience. He wanted to hear firsthand about the humility in Christ that was going on there. He wanted to hear firsthand about the good work of the gospel message that was permeating not only the church, but the city. That's news of you. That's what he wanted to hear about. He didn't care if they weren't prospering financially. Not that he didn't care, but that wasn't going to satisfy his need. He wasn't concerned about whether they'd made peace with the Roman government around them. He wanted to hear news about the work of the gospel in their life. This was what was going to satisfy his need. Paul wanted to hear firsthand 
about the work of the gospel. And the result of that, Paul says, I can rejoice in that. Let me ask you, what satisfies your need, my need, to rejoice? Let's read on. Verse 25. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Well, note the pattern again. What Paul planned. Well, this time he was going to send someone else. Well, who was he going to send? Well, he was going to send Epaphroditus. But then again, why? So check out the description of Epaphroditus. Paul says in verse 25, he said he was a fellow worker. That means he's partnered with Paul too. He's a fellow soldier fighting the good fight, a messenger, a minister, or that word actually translates as a servant from the church at Philippi, sent to meet Paul's needs. And look at the heart of the man. It says he was longing for his brothers and sisters at Philippi because he, Epaphroditus, knew they, the church at Philippi, were distressed over the fact that he was ill. In fact, Paul confirms that in verse 27. Yes, indeed, he was ill. Well, let's look at the why. Look at verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that who may rejoice? That you. Who's you? What's the church at Philippi, was it not? That you may rejoice at seeing him again. The church at Philippi had the very same need that Paul had. And can I remind you that these people were not in a good spot. They were at odds now, not only with the Jewish community, but they were at odds with the Roman government. There's two strikes. Paul wanted to hear about the work of the gospel in their life. And can I remind you that their life was not good? He said that in chapter 1. You've partnered with the gospel. And when you partner with the gospel, you're partnering with the consequences. So he's saying, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you so that you too can rejoice. He was concerned about them. They had the same need. And so he was going to encourage them to bring them joy um, because they had heard, and it was true, he nearly died for the work of the gospel. In fact, both Epaphroditus and Timothy, if you look closely, uh, echo back to Chapter 1, verse 27, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. But again, there's one other thing. Let's read on in verse 28. Look back there. Let's start in the beginning. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. Okay, he's sending uh, Epaphroditus back to them so that they could rejoice. They had that need. But look, look closer now. And then I may be less anxious. Well, what's up with that? 
Is Paul a nervous wreck? I would be. I may be less anxious. Let me translate that for you from the Greek. That I may be less sorrowful. What's the opposite of sorrow? Is it not joy? Do you see the theme that's running through here? We miss it just a little bit in the translation, but in the, in, in the uh, negative sense, he said that I might be less sorrowful or less, have less sorrow. In the positive, it says, so that I might have joy. He sent it back because he had a need for joy. They had a need. He had a need. Let me ask you again. What satisfies your need for joy? Well, finally, there's one little change, verse 29 through 30. We know what Paul had planned. He was going to send someone. Who did he send? He sent Timothy first, and he was going to send Epaphrodites. Send. Send. Now there's something a little bit different. Pitching. Catching. Sending. Receiving. Look at it closely. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The downstream natural affect of sending someone is Paul had an expectation of them that they would receive these men. In fact, he says of Epaphroditus, he says, receive him in the Lord. But what else? He says, honor such men. Who are the such men? Well, it's Timothy. It's Epaphroditus that he's sending. Men with all of those characteristics that are listed above. And Paul sends these men to the church with the expectation that they are to receive them in the Lord with all joy, honoring these guys. Why? Well, for one, Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of the gospel, and Timothy was suffering the very consequences of working along Paul, preaching the gospel, okay? Now, does the sending, 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 and receiving reminds you of any systematic theology in the scripture. Genesis 3.15, God's plan from the very beginning was that he would send one who would crush the head of Satan. That was his plan. Let me read you what Paul wrote in Ephesians about God's plan. This is the pattern. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Does that sound like God's plan to you? Who did God send? I think you know the answer. He sent his only son, did he not? The Messiah, the Christ, the perfect one, 
the one whose manner of life manner of life was not worthy of the gospel it was the gospel do you see that and he goes on to say in the why John puts it perfectly first John chapter 4 9 through 10 in this the love of God was made manifest among us who did God says John says that God sent his only son how plain is that into the world why he answers it so that we might live through him in this love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and did what sent his son why to be the propitiation for our sins John wrote earlier for God so loved the world sounds like a why to me in John 3 17 he says for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but in order that the world might be saved through him there's the why the plan the who the why here's what I like what was Jesus's description of the plan Luke 15 starting in verse 4 what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it and when he is found he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing and when he comes home he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance do you see the theme the gospel plan you and I have a desperate need that has to be satisfied God has a plan he sent his son why to satisfy our need for salvation but can I remind you the truth of the matter is God has sent and sent and sent and sent his word and there's still people that do not receive that you understand that right God Gary laid it out so perfectly last week in Daniel chapter 5 when he was talking about Bel Belshazzar Belshazzar when the writing was on the wall it was too late am I right Gary the writing on the wall it was too late he did not humble himself before the mighty God his grandfather did he didn't and when the writing was on the wall it was done it was too late and I loved what Gary said after that is we need to do business with God if you have not done business with God do it now before the writings on the wall again Jesus Lee perfectly possessed all of the qualities that Paul talked about in this passage I love it when you look at that passage and and you and you see Christ in it it says he didn't can I remind you he didn't nearly die for the gospel like Epaphroditus he did die and that is the gospel okay his work wasn't uh, sort of complete it was complete and that's our 
joy, that is God's joy when he sees someone repent and come to me. The writer of Hebrews again puts it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every rate, every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who, which is referring to Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me ask you again. What really satisfies your need to rejoice? The real question is not do you have a need. The real question is what satisfies it? What really satisfies it? The thread of rejoicing, if you haven't picked up on it, in Philippians runs throughout this book. The guy sitting in prison, he is way out of his mantra, but yet he's preaching. He's writing, and he needs joy. And the joy that he's going to get is when he hears back from these guys that, hey, they're strong in Philippi. There's people being saved in Philippi. Paul's not concerned about the Romans. He's not concerned about their financial prowess at this point. He's concerned about the eternal destiny. Can I be real with you for just a second? It is so much easier for me to make some element of a suggestion or send it from the pulpit than it is for me sometimes to receive it sitting in the pew. And I get that. Um, sometimes my joy is more wrapped up in my team, be it football or baseball or what have you. Um, but there's a difference, I think, between um, having some element of happiness and um, real joy. And I say that only because I don't think that real joy can be faked. If you're really joyful, I don't think you can fake it. And the reality is, if we're going to be honest, I don't know that I get real joy from the world because it's circumstantial. Things change from one season to the next. It's one team over this team. Or the stock market does one of these and it changes and then it comes back. And all of these things that are just temporary. You know, you keep, we keep saying, well, you know what? If we would just get rid of the woke culture, which I think is a total, uh, what do you call that? Enigma or it's just not right. Woke is the wrong word. They're asleep. They're dead. But we say, you know, if these people would just go away, if I just get uh, some other leader, no, no, no. That's not going to bring you joy. These are temporary things. Paul says, no, rejoicing is a heart issue. It's not a circumstantial issue. How do I know that? The man was in prison. <laughs> he was sitting there chained to a Roman guard. It was not circumstantial. Oh, if we just get another emperor. 
Oh, if they just let me out of prison. Did you hear Paul say that? No. No. He wanted a message of joy coming back from those guys that said, you know what, that church at Philippi is absolutely smoking hot with the gospel. That's what he wanted to hear. That's what was going to make him rejoice. We need to rejoice in our salvation when we hear about the results of the work of the gospel, even in another church. We need to rejoice when we hear about the strength of the church in the midst of conflict in the world, when God is being merciful, healing, saving, sending rain. Amen? So what do we take away from it today? Let me answer that by posing a couple of questions and you answer them within yourself. How much of my heart is like Paul's? The need to rejoice in difficult circumstances. The joy that satisfies me is the joy of hearing that other people are being saved. How much of my heart is like Timothy's or Epaphroditus? Does that describe me? Here's a bigger question. Would Paul have sent me? But most importantly, when I inventory my life, what satisfies me eternally in the midst of the world? And oh, by the way, this isn't your home. Overall, I think uh, in his bad grammar way, I'm just going to tell you right now, Mick Jagger was wrong. Mick Jagger says, I can't get no satisfaction. The Bible says, oh, yes, you can. There is an eternal satisfaction in rejoicing in our salvation, hearing about lives being changed because of the gospel, and participating in the work of the gospel. That's yet another description of a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I remind you, without Christ, there is no sorrow turned to joy. There is no receiving for what God is sending. And you ain't getting and you ain't got no satisfaction. Let me ask you, what satisfies your need to rejoice? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you speak of the heart and not the world around us. Father, we're surrounded by what we absolutely abhor. But yet, in the midst of our very being, because of Christ Jesus and your Holy Spirit, we can rejoice. Father, I pray that we would rejoice that you have saved us. I pray that we would rejoice when we hear of others being saved. Father, I pray that we would rejoice when you, we see you working in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
God, help us to be those participants in the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And amen.